And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Raymond Ibrahim. And Raymond is an author. And Raymond, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. You uh, wrote a fairly recent book by the title of Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. And you know a lot about this religion, so why don't you take it away and tell us maybe a little bit about your book, and also feel free to share uh, about yourself, your own story. Sure, Dan. Um so a little bit about me in order to understand the, the purpose and the background of the book is um, I studied uh, history uh, actually with a lot of people know him, Victor Davis Hanson. He's become very popular now. He's always yeah. on Fox News and so forth. Yeah. Um, but I knew him back in the day, maybe almost 25 years ago. He was my professor and um, I studied history under him and wrote my master's thesis. Uh, he was my chair. And um, because of my linguistic abilities, I can read, study Arabic. I also studied classical Greek with him. Um, uh, really, my my interest zeroed in on that nexus between the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, the Christian Empire, and the Islamic world in the 7th century from a historical point of view. So that's kind of my background. I studied that era. And then, and like I said, that's almost 25 years ago. Fast forward, um, I, you know, became basically a professional writer in the topic of radical Islam and counterterrorism and so forth. Um, and then I wrote a lot, and I still do, about the pers- Muslim persecution of Christians, which is a very real phenomenon. And then, you know, fast forward to now, I started writing, uh, going back to writing uh, about my original interest, which is books that deal with the history of military, often interaction and non-military uh, between Islam and uh, Christian Europe, uh, often before the modern period. So that's, uh, so this book, Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam, is about eight characters, eight historical figures that I've uh, extrapolated from that very long history. My previous book before this is called Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. And that book, what I did is um, I looked at all the mil- the mass the major decisive battles between the Islamic world and Christian Europe from the first one I looked at was in the year 636 the Battle of Yarmouk and I went all the way up until um, uh, really the, uh, the America the United States America's first war as a nation which was against Muslims the Barbary Wars um, and uh, so that was that book when I did that I came across so many impressive, uh, really, heroes uh, from the Western or Christian tradition, which I didn't have much time to get into their lives. So in this new book, Defenders of the West, that's what I did. It's sort of like Sword and Scimitar, but I I focus, instead of looking at decisive battles, I look at decisive men, and I write about their lives and and their history. And I think it makes for interesting reading, um, first and foremost, because it shows you a lot of these men today actually are either not recognized or seen as the bad guys. And the reason for that is due to our essentially insane, extreme leftist culture. They're denounced as, you know, toxic masculinity. They're denounced as patriarchy. They're denounced as racist. Everything you can imagine, Islamophobes, everything. Um, and so one of the reasons I want to show is that that's not the case. 
And if anything, those things that are now denounced as bad, let's say toxic masculinity or whatever, patriarchy, it's actually those were the things that drove these men to fight back so hard that they did defend the West. And, and that's the point. People don't understand just how, um, how much Europe was being bombarded by Islam in those centuries. Um, most people don't realize that in the 7th century, if you looked at the entire Christian world, um, it, it consisted of, of course, Europe, uh, and not all of Europe at the time, because this is the 7th century, but Europe and then all of North Africa, Southwest Asia, what we call the Middle East, and Turkey. And all of those regions, which were actually the older, more original and richer and more, uh, you know, theologically sophisticated, one might say, centers of Christendom in the 7th century were swallowed up by Islam. Um, you know, you had five centers, five seas, essentially, Rome, and then Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. And four of those five, every one, every, every one of them except Rome, was actually conquered and absorbed and swallowed up till this day. And then the rest of Europe proper was just bombarded constantly. Muslims actually went as far as Iceland and Denmark for, uh, during their slave raids on uh, Christians. And it's important to underscore that, you know, when you hear about the Islamic State and ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and the things that they do, are ideologically driven jihad and so forth, um, that, that sort of thing, which we're told today, was, is that what ISIS is doing has nothing to do with Islam and this is a radical interpretation. Actually, that, is, that was on constant display against Europe, but on a much greater scale than something small like ISIS. It was actually the massive caliphates and sultanates that did this, which is wage war in the name of Allah. It was understood as a jihad. And uh, Christians are infidels, and they had three choices to fight back, you know, or, or a means to convert to Islam and live in peace, or to be dhimmis, pay jizya, tribute, and live as second-class citizens, or fight to the death. So the sources all point that out, the primary sources, especially the Arabic sources, many of which I translate in these books. Uh, so I think that's one of the greatest lessons of the history, and that's uh, what I try to uh, underscore and capture in my most recent book, Defenders of the West, Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, this looks like a very fine book, and I should probably get myself a copy. Today we're talking with its author, Raymond Ibrahim. How do I pronounce your last name, Raymond? Well, you just pronounced it very well. Okay. <laughs> Ibrahim, yeah. Okay. Um, tell us about your background in terms of your conversion to Christ. Any information there that you would like to share with us? Well, I was born and raised in what I would describe a very Christian household and um, regularly went to church. I count myself and, and consider myself a Christian. Um, you know, I take the Bible so seriously that I, that's, that's why I actually studied and learned Greek. It wasn't necessarily for these. Yeah, and so till this day when I read the Bible, I read it in, in the original Greek, which I've been doing <laughs> for, like I said, uh, two decades. <laughs> and, and I consult the Septuagint often um, you know, for the Old Testament. Um, I, can't, I can't say I'm the greatest of Christians. Obviously, I'm a sinner, but, you know, there it is. That's uh, <laughs> the best kind of uh, summation I can offer. Well, you're being very honest. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Sometimes um, 
we fall into a trap thinking that someone needs a very drastic conversion experience and all of that, yeah. but the, the the fact is, do we believe in Jesus or not? Some of the most wonderful Christians have been brought up in a Christian home, and they can't even point to a specific time when they believed in Jesus. They always, they always um, were brought up to believe in Jesus. The main thing is that they confess him today, and they're walking in the light as he's in the light. And so, um, and they've received Christian baptism. So, uh, each of us are quite different, as it turns out, in our experiences. So, I, I respect your background, and it's a very good one. Thank you. Um, Defenders of the West, the Christian heroes. I started off thinking maybe this was going to be a 10 minute interview, and if you have to run, that's fine, but. <sighs> I, we've got children here today, and so I may have to drop out at any moment, but can you tell us maybe about one of the characters that is special to you in your book, Defenders of the West, and describe him to us? Sure. Uh, so there's eight of them. You know, it's hard for me. People always ask me, well, who's your favorite character? And um, I don't know if I really have one, but I do know that when, I, when I've had several colleagues pre-read the book and so forth, and it's interesting because most of them, when I ask them that question, they all respond with different characters. So I think one of the um, maybe appealing points of the book is, uh, you know, these various characters, because they come from different theaters of the conflict, each resonate differently with different readers. Uh, so you have basically, I focus in the three main regions, which is Spain and the Reconquista, and there I focus on El Cid and um, uh, uh, King Ferdinand III, who's known as Saint Ferdinand. And then I also focus in the Holy Land and the Crusades. And you have King Louis, who's actually King Louis the Ninth, who's the cousin, first cousin of Ferdinand. And he's also, of course, was sainted. And also Godfrey of Guyon, who was the first king of Jerusalem during the First Crusade. And um, uh, King Richard, of course, the Lionheart. You have to include him for his exploits. And then finally, the third and more and the most recent of these uh, conflicts or, or theaters of war and jihad and crusades was the Balkans under against the Ottoman Turks. And there you have three characters, John Hunyadi um, and uh, Skanderbeg. And of course, probably the most controversial is Vlad the Impaler, who I included, um, <laughs> better known as Dracula. <laughs> and the reason, so we can, I guess, talk a little bit about him. The reason I included him is uh, because I wanted to show, uh, you know, we live in a day and age where I think many of us are becoming familiar with the concept of fake news, or at least the idea that various um, people of influence uh, who have a strong voice distort things and, 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 and in order to guide a certain narrative. Oh, all the and time. I think yeah, of course. So it's interesting to me from kind of a scholar scholarly background or academic background to see that that sort of thing has been happening for decades in, in the discipline of history. And so Vlad the Impaler, you know, now he's, of course, Dracula, blood-sucking fiend and all that, but in, in originally, yes, he did impale a lot of people, and he certainly was ruthless. But what I try to show you in the book is, first, that was because he was actually a hostage of the Muslims, the Turks, and that was their preferred method of torture, impalement. So he's essentially learned it from them in his youth, and he used it primarily against them in his wars when they were invading his, his native land of Wallachia, uh, which is today modern-day Romania. And so, you know, he was fighting fire with fire, number one. Number two, 
you know, I mean, he went through a lot and his father was murdered and his brother was buried alive and so forth. So he really had to be ruthless. And then you also find that everyone else there, including other, uh, you know, Eastern Christian uh, powers were, were just as ruthless and engaged in impalement and so forth. But really what's interesting is, um, you know, he, he, he had a lot of conflict with other Europeans at the time. And um, it, it was during the rise of the Gutenberg press. And so one of the first things that were printed were all these propagandistic tracts against him that portrayed him as a bloodsucker and an evil person and so forth. But historians, and I go into that, you know, have shown that that's really exaggerated. It was just, it was a propaganda. It was a fake news effort basically to take him down. And it really did work. And I, I find that interesting that till today, um, you know, that resonates because then in the early 20th century, Bram Stoker basically, uh, you know, he created a, a vampire and then he just slapped on the name of Vlad and the Impaler on him because precisely because of these tracks that are today understood to be propagandistic. So I think that's interesting. But all the characters, you know, they're very, they have their, like I said, but one thing that's common through all of them, you know, so they all come from different areas of Europe and so and from different eras. I think the first one, is in the 10th or 11th century, and the last one is in the 15th century. Um, and again, from three different areas. But what, what is interesting is that whether they were fighting what's called Moors in Spain, or whether they were fighting what's called Saracens in the Holy Land, or whether they were fighting the Turks, um, you see that those three groups of people who were all Muslims, of course, uh, Fought the same way uh, again, you know. As I was saying, the whole concept of ISIS, they all behaved that way, and they all cited the Quran, um, you know. And like I said, I earlier touched on the Barbary Wars with America, and I think it's very interesting to have that quote in the book. But when um, the Barbary pirates were these North African Muslims who were raiding American vessels right after the Revolutionary War, right after America gained independence from Britain. And um, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams met with the ambassador uh, of Barbary, you know, one of these Muslims. And Jefferson and Adams asked him, and they said, why are you attacking our sailors? What have we done to you? You know, we consider all men our friends. You know? yeah. and, and then that man, the Barbary ambassador, just amazing because uh, he said, he basically just said, we're attacking you because our Quran, Quran commands us to attack you because you're an infidel, our prophet tells us to attack you, to give you three choices, to enslave you, kill you, or, or so forth. So it's just interesting to see that that same, you know, ideology that today we're told has nothing to do with Islam was present from the very beginnings, as, as you can see in this book, in the very early chapters, in the, or the early history of interaction, and all the way on to the very end. Um, so I think that thread is very eye-opening and interest, interesting and, and should be for readers. Yeah. Um, a thought keeps coming to my mind I want to ask you about, and that is this uh, this word in America, diversity. And uh, I don't think it's all that people want it to be. Um, if you have a religion that um, is like Islam and and does not does not work well with Christianity, is is my understanding. I, I don't think diversity is really possible. Um, can you talk to us about this, this idealistic notion of diversity and then tell us what really happens on the ground? Yeah, that's a great observation, which I agree with. Um, so diversity, or another word you can use that's very, you know, a lot of currency nowadays is multiculturalism. Yeah. 
I think what, what people have to understand is, you know, America is a multiracial, multiethnic nation. And I think that's a good thing, and we can celebrate that. But sure. it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be multicultural. Because a culture, what is a culture? Culture isn't just limited, you know, to uh, exotic cuisine or the ability to eat, you know, whatever, Thai food down the street. A culture, you know, comes with a whole distinct worldview, priorities, you know, expectations, uh, certain expectations of society and so forth, that if you have a country and you have various different cultures, you basically have all these different peoples and their different ideas and views of life clashing with one another. And that doesn't make for a unified nation, and it definitely makes for a weak nation. So to say that being multicultural is a source of our strength, that's just nonsense. It's the exact opposite. What's 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 stronger or, uh, or more unified? A nation where everyone shares the same principles, or a nation where everyone is different? And I think that that's what feeds into the idea of relativism, which is another issue and another problem yeah. that plagues this society. Um, because to have that and to allow for different viewpoints, you also you have to accept relativism, um, and then there's no truth, and then you know, and so it's this very slippery slope. And um, as you indicate with Islam, that's a good point. You know, if you have a country like the United States, which is founded on Christian mores and and expectations, let's look at one thing, you know, monogamy, for example. Um, And then you get Islam, which is polygamous by nature. And, you know, so how does that really work? You know, uh, and and now see the multiculturalists will say, well, you should let them have their way. And then all of a sudden the unification of your own nation and its expectations start to fracture because there's no more no more sense of right or wrong. And that's yes. just one issue. Um, you know, that's actually a benign issue in a way, but, uh, you know, Islam comes with other viewpoints, you know, that are very uh, antithetical. So for one of them, for example, is if you're an apostate, every Muslim in Islam, first of all, there's no rites or baptismal. If you're born to a Muslim father, you're a Muslim. That's the end of it. Now, if you try to leave Islam in an, in an overt fashion, or especially if you convert to Christianity, then you're an apostate, and all of Islamic teaching is that you should either be killed, all right, or at the very least ostracized and just thrown out of society, uh, you know, as a pariah. Mm-hmm. Now, how that that kind of thinking actually, you know, manifests itself in the West all the time, and, and one of those manifestations is honor killings when you know a Muslim father killed his daughter because she's Westernizing and essentially apostatizing. Um, so that kind of thinking, how does that square? with, you know, the sort of freedom that's expected in the West, you see. So, yeah, so multi-diversity, I think it's good in what if it's, you know, different, let's say, races or ethnicities or whatever, but it's not good if it means all of us have different, you know, priorities and expectations and worldviews, because that just leads to chaos. Yeah, and uh, another question I have for you, maybe uh, something you could comment on, is um, sometimes... uh, in our hubris as Americans, and I love America, believe me, I really do. Um, in our hubris, though, we think, oh, we can export democracy. And there's these kind of globalist types, and they figure, well, we can just export democracy to Iraq or one of these other Muslim countries um, without seeing conversion to the Christian faith. Because, of course, that would make a difference. But just a, a blatant exporting of democracy by, 
by powerful guns and ammo and and bombs, I don't think that ever works. Your comments? Oh, it doesn't. And I think the most obvious and recent example is the Afghanistan debacle, <laughs> where you know the United, <laughs> where the U.S. goes in there for about twenty years and you know supposedly dominates and restructures society and you know changes the leadership and so forth. Uh, and this is one of the you know the poorest nations in the world. So you'd think the U.S. would have a lot of influence and impact. And then you know, 20 years later, we're back to square one, where the Taliban, the original bad guys, who oh, yeah. provided sanctuary for Al Qaeda, and we're still providing sanctuary for Al Qaeda, yes. as we found out last week when Ayman Zawahiri, the leader, was found and killed. Okay. Now they're back in power, and the U.S. has left, I don't know how many, $150 billion worth of you know, high-tech weaponry. So, you know, and supposedly we were bringing democracy, we're going to, you know, bring them out of the dark ages, and of course they're going to embrace it, and they're going to be thankful and so forth, and none of that happened. And I think I think you touched on it. One of the problems is, you know, democracy, and so, so many of the things that modern-day Western secularists and even atheists, Yes. enjoy and take for granted. They don't realize that these ideas didn't grow out of a vacuum, but they came distinctly from Christian from Christianity. Right. Okay, so that that's the essence of it. But because they don't know that, and even many of these atheists and leftists, you know, they operate according to Christian principles with, unconsciously, because they grew up in that milieu, you know, that, that background. And... Uh, but because they don't know that, they think that, you know, these these principles like democracy and freedom... Can somehow, you know, they don't need the Christian, you know, uh, foundation. They can just exist on their own. And the fact is, they can't. Um, at least, in my opinion, not not permanently, possibly temporarily, and in a sort of ephemeral way. But uh, without that foundation, because that is the source of these ideas, you know, in, in the inalienable rights of man and so forth. Uh, if you don't have that foundation, a lot of these different civilizations and cultures just don't. Then it, it's really it's it becomes artificial trying to impose these things on those societies as we've seen with Afghanistan and Iraq and so many other places. Yeah, there's so much we could still talk about, and I, I even though this is the longer form, we're already running out of time. We're talking about the book today, "Defenders of the West: The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam," and I think a distinction needs to be made. Uh, I mentioned first this this faulty idea of exporting democracy, but there's also a, a, a proper idea of a just war, and uh, I, I imagine that must have been drifting through your mind as you wrote this book, Defenders of the West. Oh, actually, I, a lot, um, a large portion of it in the introduction of the book, uh, Just War, because uh, without it, I think one of the problems, so for example, today, uh, one of the issues I think that's going on with Christianity is it's, you know, it's become so pacified and, and too many Christians yes. are convinced that, that, you know, that turning the other cheek is the, you know, do all the religion and you can never stand up for yourself. Right. And I sort of, I refer to it as a sort of doormat Christianity. Correct. And so I do spend a lot of time talking about how that was not the case. I mean, for, you know, the first, 1.9 millennia of Christian history, um, and in all its manifestations, whether Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, they all understood the idea of just war, and it was articulate. It's in the Bible itself, you know. If you look at Jesus, in the one recorded instance where he got slapped, he didn't give his other cheek. He actually challenged the man that slapped him and said, "Why did you 
slap me. What have I, what, what have I done wrong? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one example. When the centurion came to him, you know, and, and, and Jesus healed his servant, um, you know, this, this is a centurion of a Roman army. I mean, he, this is a leader of one of the most ruthless army in the world. And nowhere does Jesus tell him, repent and quit your job and, and no longer Correct. serve in the military. Yes. You know, same thing with, with John the Baptist when those soldiers came. You know, and he said, "What what must we do?" He told them, "Be content with your wages." Um, so even in the Bible in the New Testament, you see that. But then you get, of course, you know, like Augustine and, and various other people who who really get into it and discuss the idea of just war. And the long and short of it is, if you are attacked, you are definitely um, permitted to defend yourself. Correct. And that's why, and that's why it's interesting. And I spent a lot of time talking about the Crusades. Because the Crusades ostensibly do not seem to be just war. It just seems like because you got Europeans going into Muslim territory and attacking them. But they saw it as a just war because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, all of the Middle East was Christian originally. And they knew that. And so it was a sort of, we're trying to reclaim, even it might have been centuries since you've conquered it. And this actually comes out in the book, in Defenders of the West, where the Crusaders say this to the Muslims during their you know, uh, exchanges, and they point out this is Christian territory, you stole it, you you know, you conquered yes. it centuries ago, that doesn't make it yours, etc., etc. So certainly just war is a very important thing, and um, yeah, I get into it a lot in the book, because you won't, you, this is why today a lot of these guys, people will say they're not even Christians, look at them, they were ruthless, they fought, they killed, <laughs> and so forth. But you have to understand it in the context of just war, and yes, like you do. And it's also. And but if you look at their lives, these were pretty pious men, and you know, based on the understanding of Christianity in their era, they were very um, you know adherent to it, and they prioritized it. So they at least had that going for them. Now, uh, I we have run out of time, but I want to encourage the listeners to get your book. How would they go about getting your book? Well, you know. I think most people nowadays order books online, and yep. uh, so you can just, if you go online and, and Google or, or use whatever, put Defenders of the West, Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam, and, uh, and look at shopping, it'll pop up in a lot of places. The most obvious and easiest is Amazon, but I understand there's a lot of people that don't like to do business with Amazon, so That's fine. That's uh, fine. You, can, you can get it, yeah. There's also a, a website called conservativereaders.com, which also Good. carries it. Good. Yeah. Well, I, I will say this. I was just I just brought it up on Amazon, and they have these ratings, and you got a fo solid five stars. You know, the, not too many ratings huh. yet because it's a brand new book. But um, I think this is probably a great find. Defenders of the West: The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Today, our guest is the author of that book, Raymond Ibrahim. And Raymond, I want to thank you very much for joining us, and may God bless you. You too. Thanks for having me, Dave. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.